Hello, and welcome to episode 83 of the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. In 2016, Jeffrey Hinton, Ph.D., famous for his work on artificial neural networks, said, It is quite obvious that we should stop training radiologists. Well, it just so happens that we are still training radiologists. They are as important as ever. Today, we get back to artificial intelligence and med tech. This episode is called AI in Radiology, a Researcher and Clinician's Perspective. And to help us look at AI in Radiology and med tech is Paul Yee, MD, Director of the University of Maryland's Medical Intelligent Imaging Center. It is also known as UM2I, which is pronounced UMI. In today's episode, you will learn why AI is not going to replace radiologists and doctors in general, where AI is helping doctors right now, and where it can contribute in the future, and how medtech can contribute and learn. As usual, this is an information-packed episode that will position you better to understand AI and how it can contribute to your future and your company's future. Be sure to look at the show notes for links that Paul recommends, and if you like this podcast, simply share it with a friend via the share link on your podcast player. A little housekeeping. In March, as in February, all new membership dues for the MedTech Leaders community are going to be contributed to HerHealthEQ.org. This is an organization that helps women in the third world with health equity by putting much-needed medical equipment in a position to be of assistance in their health care. In fact, I will match the dues of the next 10 people that join. You can learn more about the community at medtechleaders.net. It costs only about four cups of artisanal coffee annually. More housekeeping. We have rounded out one team for the Ukrainian MedTech Assistance Group. I would like to create one more team. No one knows when this terrible war will be over. But we want to be ready to assist several Ukrainian MedTech companies the minute it is over. Thanks for your patience with the housekeeping. Both issues are important. Okay, it's time to get together with Paul to learn about artificial intelligence in radiology and med tech. Paul, Welcome to the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. You know, thanks so much for spending time today and to talk about this super interesting subject of artificial intelligence, especially in the area of your expertise, which is both radiology and you know musculoskeletal and neuro, neurological issues. So uh, great to have you here. Thanks, Ted, for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. So just tell us a little bit about... Um, who you are, what your role is at the University of Maryland. 
Sure. Um, so at the University of Maryland, I'm in a role as a physician scientist, and that really speaks of two different roles. Uh, first, I'm a physician, first and foremost. Uh, specifically, I'm a musculoskeletal radiologist, which means that I am an expert in interpreting images of the bones and joints to make diagnoses for things like arthritis, things like fractures, as well as performing image-guided procedures, so things like joint injections and aspirations. The second role that I play is as a scientist, and specifically as an AI researcher, and my interest is in evaluating both the clinical applications and potential pitfalls of AI and radiology. And I have a particular emphasis on the trustworthiness and fairness of algorithms in radiology. And in these roles, I work with other physicians, engineering faculty, and students from both the engineering and medical worlds to do collaborative research. And towards that collaboration, um, I've been recruited here at the University of Maryland to direct the new Artificial Intelligence Center in the Department of Radiology. It's called the University of Maryland Medical Intelligent Imaging Center, which is a mouthful. So we have an acronym, uh, UMI, um, U-M-2-I-I, pronounced UMI. And hmm. what this really is meant to be is a central hub for like-minded people interested in AI, both at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, whether you're at the School of Medicine in the hospital or on the research side, as well as neighboring areas. So places like University of Maryland, Baltimore County and College Park, where there are fantastic engineering and computer science departments, as well as at Hopkins, where I still have an adjunct engineering um, faculty position for my training time. And so for me, what's most fun is working with really smart, motivated people with skill sets that are different, but complementary to mine. And I think that's made all the difference so far in um, everything that I've been involved with. All right. Excellent. One, one other thing we should cover is that you're a podcaster too. So tell us about your, what you do as a podcaster and, and what the podcast is. Yeah, sure. So for the past two years or so, I've co-hosted a podcast for the journal Radiology Artificial Intelligence. And this is the official AI journal for the RSNA, which is the Radiological Society of North America. It's sort of like our um, primary governing group for radiologists in terms of our professional society. And in this podcast role, uh, we interview a researcher or thought leader in the field of AI and radiology about some nuance of AI in our field, whether that be an interesting research article that was published in the journal or some hot topics such as the impact of AI and global health for radiology, or even just the life story and perspectives of a luminary about their perspectives and their predictions for the future of the field. Through that podcast, we've been able to reach a wide audience, both in and out of radiology, and even do some in-person events. Uh, just this past November, we took our podcast on the road to the RSNA annual meeting in Chicago, and it was the first time in a couple of years that all of us were able to gather in person. And that was a lot of fun because we had an AI fireside chat that was, you know, just a more relaxed kind of conversation with some of the senior editorial board members. And so, you know, all in all, it's been a lot of fun getting the chance to interview a lot of interesting people, learn from them. And as an avid podcast listener myself, it's been um, giving me a tremendous amount of respect for the process of creating an episode, recording and editing it. So I think um, Ted, tremendous respect for what you're doing here too. Congratulations on a, on a great uh, podcast. And for the listeners, that's how I found Paul when I was researching for people to speak to about artificial intelligence. And I knew radiology was one of the areas I wanted to investigate. I put those two things together and boom, radiology AI came up and you as the uh, host, uh, this is perfect. So anyway, I'm, gl I'm glad you're here. Well, let's move on to just a story, you know, so if you think about patients you have worked with over the past several weeks, just like relive a case where either AI was utilized or AI could have made a difference and why. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, as an MSK radiologist or musculoskeletal, um, I don't encounter a lot of imaging scenarios that might be as high acuity as some other specialties like neuroradiology, let's say, um, where they have emergencies like things like strokes or bleeds in the head that are really time sensitive. And so what happens is in a lot of MSK radiology departments, including my own, outpatient MRI scans are done over the weekend. And these are frequently not reviewed until Monday morning when people come back for the regular work week. And so that's a nice thing from a work-life balance kind of point of view. But sometimes I've wondered if that could be problematic because there are occasionally some of these urgent or emergency kind of findings that are on these outpatient scans. Let's say that you're just scheduled for Saturday morning, you walk in, you get a scan, sometimes things happen. So I remember one time, um, not in the past few weeks, but maybe about six months ago, it was Monday morning, came in, started working through the MRI list. And we opened up an MRI of a um, pretty complex case, uh, basically someone who had a tumor and a bone, they had surgery before. And it was one of those things, right? Just scheduled, routine, no big deal, supposedly. But the MRI ended up showing a pretty big blood clot that was extending in from the veins of the thigh all the way up even into the lower abdomen and pelvis. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, the scan was done on Saturday, uh, Friday or Saturday, and it didn't get read until, you know, a couple of days later. And it's one of those things that we called the ordering doctor and told him, listen, there's a clot here. I think the patient needs to get treated. Now I could have, at that time, I thought, man, if we had AI that could look for these clots, even when we're not in the hospital, even when we're not working, at least maybe we could have gotten ahead of it a little bit by automatically notifying the person who ordered it. And so I think that that's one area I could see AI really helping because this is a pretty rare scenario, but for that individual patient, that could mean the difference between, well, you know, frankly, life or death, depending on the situation. And so that's one area I could see AI really helping, especially because the way that healthcare has been going with imaging trends is that images, um, the volumes of images being acquired are just increasing continually, um, both in radiology departments at academic centers like the University of Maryland, as well as private practices around the country. And so I think it's just going to be something just due to statistics. We're going to have more and more of these cases that could really be helped with um, identifying these abnormalities. That is a great example. And the MRI team, the technicians and the <clears throat> the people that are running the MRIs, I, I guess sometimes they're just so busy that they do it. They took a quick, quick glance to say, oh, it's all focused. Everything is on target. We got the images we want. But they really don't look any further than that. It's like it's off to the doctor to be, you know, to wait until it is evaluated by the physician that's supposed to look at it. And I know that because I'm a med tech person, if I get an MRI or a, or a CAT scan or something, and I know what it's for, I'll, sometimes I'll ask them, I'll say, so what does it look like? And it's almost like, well, we can't tell you, <laughs> it's, but yeah, you could, because you're not going to hurt my feelings if you tell me something's bad, but they, you know, they, they want it to go on to somebody to evaluate it. And you're right. If, if uh, AI could have stepped in, increase the speed of the workflow by identifying something and pushing it on, that would have been great. Yeah, totally, totally. That's that's interesting. Let's go back to your career because you have a really interesting career path. I mean, you you started out in orthopedics and then you moved into radiology. I don't know if you did that on purpose, but tell us about this, your medicine career path. Yeah, for sure. So uh, my path certainly hasn't been super linear. And um, I'll go back to high school because that's when I decided I wanted to go to medical school. Um, prior to about age 15, 
I had no interest in going to medical school. I had no interest in being a doctor. All I really wanted to do was be a, a Taekwondo athlete and ultimately open up a Taekwondo gym, which is a Korean martial art. That's uh, one of the Olympic sports. And, um, you know, it's like the story of a lot of people interested in orthopedics. I had an injury. Um, I actually had surgery, but what's different is my surgery didn't work, but that spurred my interest into, well, you know, I experienced a lot of this, uh, kind of turmoil and pain with not being able to do my sport and literally being in pain. But I saw the impact that my surgeon had on me, even just in those moments where I was pretty vulnerable. And although I wasn't able to successfully heal from that surgery, um, it sparked an interest in medicine. And, uh, that's how I got interested in orthopedic surgery. I ended up applying to a number of uh, BAMD programs that basically offer medical school acceptance right out of high school. And I was wow. fortunate enough to be accepted in the one at Boston university. So um, off I went to Boston and really for the next seven years, actually eight years, I was pretty tunnel vision about orthopedics. I knew that, you know, I really liked the uh, subject matter. I think there's always something about the anatomy and just kind of maybe, you know, through my involvement with Taekwondo, there's something really cool about it. But then as I studied anatomy, I just thought, wow, this anatomy is really beautiful. It's really got a lot of, um, you know, really just really in, ingenuous um, design and uh, features. And then the fact that I could use that knowledge and the kind of intellectual um, part of it to help people, to me, that was really cool. And one of the things in medical school um, during that time that I really realized was I really like research. Um, I started out doing it because people told me you've had to do research to get into orthopedics. Um, but it's something I really took to because I really like the idea and the process of coming up with a question coming up with some type of methodology to answer that question. And then honestly coming up with knowledge that no one had come up with before. And so, um, recognizing that I took a gap here in my medical school, uh, to do research with a guy named Craig Delavalle, who's an orthopedic surgeon out at Rush university in Chicago. And I did a research fellowship where, um, I learned the nuts and bolts of research from A to B or rather A to Z. So everything <laughs> from, uh, trial management, to um, running industry post-market surveillance studies, to doing studies of my own. And I think that was, I share this because that was one of the most um, influential moments for me in medical school and experiences where the work that we did, I saw that we could really impact clinical management. Um, some of the work we did was establishing diagnostic criteria for infections after hip and knee replacement which is a rare, but devastating complication. Mm -hmm. And the work that we did actually established some of the gold standard criteria that are still used to this day for some challenging situations. And wow. so for me as a medical student, it was just showing me, you know, this mission of clinical research to advance healthcare and to advance human health. It wasn't just this pie in the sky kind of aspiration, but I was able to be a part of it. And so that really made an impression on me early on that research was something I definitely wanted to be a large component of my career and specifically towards advancing human health. And so I go back to BU. Um, I end up matching residency at UCSF for orthopedic surgery. And I was incredibly excited to start, you know, I was really, um, have been working hard at this for years. Um, I was excited to be in San Francisco where I have family ties, but when I got to residency, you know, I realized I didn't really like surgery as much as I thought I would. <laughs> um, also the lifestyle, it's pretty grueling, um, early mornings, late nights, not getting a lot of sleep. And to be honest, you know, I wasn't the most talented surgeon. And so I was doing something I didn't really like all that much. I wasn't naturally good at it. 
And so the hours and stress of it didn't make a whole lot of sense. If you talk to a lot of people in surgery residency, the reason they do it is because they say, I love operating. I'm willing to put up with not sleeping a lot. I'm willing to put up with all the stress and all of the, uh, you know, hardships that come with it. Um, I'm just recalling one of my uh, best friends from college, you know, he told me, listen, I have to be in the operating room. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. And for me, you know, I it just wasn't me. And so by the end of my second year, I had done a lot of soul searching because I had to really think, how did I get here? Why did I go through all of these things to make it to orthopedic surgery? And I came to a few realizations. Uh, one was that I really still did like the mission of medicine. I like that, you know, I've had a tremendous amount of educational opportunities and, um, you know, I think certain talents in certain areas like research. Um, and I like the mission of using those things to improve human health and the lives of people just in their healthcare. But the second was, I also liked the musculoskeletal anatomy. Um, I like thinking about it. I liked the disease processes and I liked the imaging part of it too. I think there's something that from anatomy that always spoke to me about um, the design of it. And then finally, um, I really, really liked research. I just realized that that was the place where I was most happiest. I think that was the place where I felt like I thrived. And so, um, I decided to switch specialties to radiology because I felt like I could do all of these things and kind of fit um, all of these criteria where I could think about this anatomy um, and disease processes and help patients through my clinical work, as well as do research to improve human health and not mm -hmm. necessarily without doing surgery. And so um, the rest is history, I suppose. Um, I made a change to radiology and uh, didn't look back. Well, that's, that is great. And I think it's really important that you're during career process that you're honest with yourself about what you think you can or can't do and, and so on, what really trips your trigger. But the the great news is you put all your orthopedic um, experience to use in radiology. So it, it all worked out well together. But what stimulated your interest in artificial intelligence? Where in your career research path and career path. And as you move from orthopedics to radiology, what triggered the interest in artificial intelligence? Yeah. So when I switched to radiology from orthopedics, I knew I wanted to continue in research. And again, my aha moment was seeing how the work that we could do in lab, it wasn't just fun. It wasn't just this like, you know, intellectual thing, but we can make a tangible difference. And so I was always searching for that thing that area where I could really dive deep into and hopefully um, make some meaningful contributions. And so it was about the fall of my second year in radiology residency and a mutual friend had come over from Singapore to Johns Hopkins where I was doing my residency. And he was a Fulbright scholar um, as an ophthalmologist. And for the past few years, he had been working in deep learning, which is a form of artificial intelligence for ophthalmology imaging for diabetic retinopathy screening. And this guy during the uh, dinner, he just kept talking our ears off about AI, this deep learning, that machine learning, this, <laughs> and, you know, I was honestly skeptical. I told him like, Hey, chest x-rays, they may seem easy and they may seem like the simplest type of medical imaging, but there's a lot of nuance in it. But, you know, I think towards the end of that conversation, he had piqued my interest. Um, and so I started looking into it and I just started realizing, wow this is deep learning. This is the stuff that's allowing me to identify my face and my family's face and my friend's faces in our iPhones. These are the things that are allowing things like self-driving cars. And I saw how it was moving at such a fast pace and it had made such tangible differences in my everyday life, just with electronics that I really started to think, wow, this could really make a big splash in medicine. 
And one of the things going back to my research interests was, you know, I looked at it and said, the pace of advancements in medicine tends to be um, pretty slow. If you think about it, a lot of scientists, they can work for decades. And, and I looked at it and said, I could work for decades in my research program. And maybe if I'm lucky, I'll make some meaningful contribution that moves the needle a little bit. And if I'm really, really lucky, I'll make something even bigger that moves it more than a little bit. But with AI and with deep learning, I saw things are moving so quickly. I think that this could be an accelerator for how we can really improve healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, when talking to my uh, friend, that guy, Daniel, you know, he was talking about how, just how quickly these algorithms could process images and how with such high accuracy, they could really allow for widespread screening um, for diabetic retinopathy in places that don't have ophthalmologists on site. So we're thinking about a lot of the uh, low-income countries in the world where there are very few physicians. Um, one figure is in um, the country of Haiti. There's fewer than 10 radiologists for several million people. And you think about that, I think that's just a travesty where imagine if we could drop off a computer that has a radiologist in the box that can say like, hey, we don't have a radiologist, but we got something that can kind of give you that same kind of care. To me, that was just eye-opening. Because I saw the potential impact it could have, because I saw the potential for it. And also because it was so early on, I thought that this was a really unique opportunity to get involved with a technology right at its um, infancy, or really its neonascency, if you will. It's sort of like if I had been born when CT scans came out or when the sure. MRI was invented. Um, and so I just thought this is a tremendous opportunity. I think that this is super exciting. That sparked my interest in it. Over time, I just got really um, excited by it and just dove deep into it. Great. Well, that's a good reason. Yeah. The, the um, and actually the eye is um, from a, a deep learning and imaging standpoint, the eye is pretty complicated. I spent a lot of time of my time in ophthalmology and I, and I was familiar with the work being done at John Hopkins to use deep learning for uh, improvement of, you know, evaluating diabetic retinopathy. So that's terrific. Well, we're talking about AI and we're sort of alluding to how it fits into healthcare. So let's just move on to AI in general. You know, what is your reaction to the statement that someday AI will put doctors out of business? You and I talked about that a while before. Yeah, honestly, it's a mixed reaction on one hand. And this is a little bit of a contrarian kind of view to a lot of physicians. I think that'd be pretty neat. I mean, imagine that. <laughs> If we could have machines that can do literally what takes over 12 years of training, four years of college, four years of medical school, at least three years of residency. And imagine if these were machines that could do this without ever fatiguing, without ever making a mistake. That, that sounds like a really neat feature, a future. But on the other hand, I also think it's, you know, I think it's unrealistic. I think that it underestimates the roles of physicians as well as some of the complexities of uh, medicine. Um, I'll give you an example. Back in 2016, Jeffrey Hinton, who was widely regarded as one of the godfathers of deep learning, he put radiologists on notice at a conference saying that, quote, it's quite obvious that we should stop training radiologists. Basically saying that deep learning would outperform radiologists in just a matter of years. Wow. Well, that was back in 2016. And here we are in 2022. That is certainly not the case. And I think part of that was that you know, Dr. Hinton, with all due respect, probably underestimated what radiologists do as well as our subject matter. So from a subject matter perspective, 
I think a lot of times people look at CT scans or MRIs as like this truth teller. But the reality is it's not a binary yes or no answer for diseases. There's often this gray area, one where we're just not sure just because of our, uh, just the limits of the technology. But two, even amongst radiologists, we'll disagree with each other on certain things. And so there's imperfection in our ability to characterize diseases on imaging. Uh, secondly, data in healthcare, it's notoriously dirty. And so there's a lot of noise and imaging is no exception. So just a super simple quality measure would be what body part is being imaged. And you would think that's pretty straightforward, right? Is it a chest x-ray? Is it mm -hmm. an x-ray of the abdomen? Is it an x-ray of the knee or the hip? But uh, when we look at some of these public chest x-ray data sets that have been released, you know, hundreds of thousands of x-rays for chest x-ray uh, AI development, our group and others have visually inspected some of these. And we found that there's often, um, and not often, but there's a non-zero number of non-chest images. So things like the skull, things like the pelvis, things like the abdomen, where even that simple thing, is this a chest x-ray? Or is this a chest x-ray that's taken from the front of the body as opposed to the side? So an AP or lateral, we can't even get that right through our automated systems. And so what that tells me is there is error in the data. And so if we expand that to things like disease labels or diagnoses, I'd imagine that that error is going to be even um, greater. And so um, that's from the subject matter perspective, but then let's talk about what radiologists do. Okay. I think that sometimes people think, you know, all right, deep learning models, they can extract features and they can classify images at superhuman levels and superhuman speeds. And that's true. I, I think that there are certain things that deep learning models can do better than radiologists, but radiologists do more than just pick out features or uh, do pattern recognition on images. We take those features, we take those patterns, but we have to synthesize them into a diagnosis. And this requires incorporation of years of medical knowledge related to anatomy, physiology, genetics, patient demographics. We have to look at each individual patient. For example, chest x-rays, you know, we often say it's just white stuff in the lungs because a pneumonia can look like a cancer. It could also look like blood. It kind of depends on what the situation is. A uh, second radiologists, you know, once we finish looking at the images, we have to create a report and we have to often communicate to other doctors and healthcare providers and also be available to them to answer questions. Because if we think there's gray area in medical imaging, there's often gray area in how that's applied to treatment of patients and deciding on what type of surgery do I do or what type of medicine do I give? <laughs> because of that, uh, we have to be there to consult with them. And then finally, Going back to the limitations of our technologies, I think that radiologists are always gonna be needed to push these technologies forward. You know, MRI, it's great, but we don't see everything. And that's why people are experimenting with super strong magnets. So we're talking, right now the standard is usually about a three Tesla magnet. But we're talking about, well, what about seven Tesla magnet? What about even higher, like a 15 Tesla to get more detail? But on the converse, one of the things that we're doing now as a, uh, field is using very weak magnets. So we're talking like 0, 0.0 something Teslas to create magnets that are safe enough to be portable. So there's a company called Hyperfine, uh, which was um, the CMO is a friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Konsadiki, and they do portable point of care MRI machines. And it's so safe that normally you have to have all these hazards where you can't bring anything metal near it. Right. But it's so safe that they had this in McCormick place over at the RSNA meeting in Chicago. And in a convention center, people can just come in, get their head scanned. 
Wow. So I think that there's always going to be a need for subject matter experts to improve things because it'd be one thing if our technologies were perfect, but unfortunately they're not. Right. And um, finally, I think there's always going to be a need for some type of uh, sanity check or safeguard because even the best of systems have unexpected failures. So we think about autopilot on airplanes. You know, I don't think most people will be comfortable flying a plane without a pilot, even though it's good most of the time. God forbid something happens, maybe just some, you know, statistical malfunction. It's a similar kind of thing, I think, with AI and healthcare, especially because of the um, frequently direct impacts and immediate impacts it can have towards people's health. What is AI approved for or cleared for now and in terms of radiology and how is it being used? Yeah, so um, I think the short answer is it's uh, approved for a lot of things and it's continually changing, which I think even for me, it's it's pretty challenging to stay on top of everything. But I think that the most widely used thing currently that's FDA approved that is actually being used in radiology departments, including ours, is for something called triage. Um, so this is basically taking a stack of images, um, let's say in the emergency department, everything is ordered, quote unquote, stat, where it's an emergency. We have to read it right away. But because everything is ordered stat, we typically read them in the order of completion. So somewhat arbitrarily. What triage will do is basically take the images, review it, look for potentially actionable or emergent findings and reorder the images and prioritize the ones that might have a ticking time bomb. And so that has a lot of um, appeal because it's not going directly to replacing a physician with all of the liability and potential pitfalls that occur because in every case, a radiologist will still look at the image. But what it can do is help the radiologist more intelligently review all of the images that might be on a list. And so we're talking about things like intracranial hemorrhage or bleeds in the brain, things like pulmonary embolism or blood clots in the lungs, things that can have a real tangible impact on patients and that are very time sensitive. So an um, example, would an example of that be, um, let's go to the, um, like a subdural hematoma or, or a bleeding in the brain. So 10 people have been admitted, you know, to the ER, there's 10 ER beds are occupied. They've all been run to the um, x-ray, CAT scan, MRI, whatever that was ordered. Traditionally, the first one would get looked at first. The second one that was taken would get looked at second and so on. But what you're saying is if number nine showed something that was emergent, like clearly dangerous, more dangerous, the AI determines it's possibly more dangerous than the previous, you know, the, than the previous six scans or images, whatever was ordered, they would, it would advance that to the radiologist for evaluation. So maybe it cuts an hour or hour and a half out of that diagnostic time. Is that a good example? Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes, um, you know, it's one thing if you're at a place like University of Maryland, where you have radiologists around the clock, but yeah. a lot of hospitals, they don't have radiologists there all the time. Um, one of my buddies is an emergency doctor in um, Austin, Texas. And he told me like, listen, we don't have radiologists overnight. We'll look at the images. We'll make our call on it. In the morning, it gets looked at. And then, you know, if they have to make changes to their diagnosis, they'll call the patient back. But imagine if they had an AI um, by their side overnight. I feel like that could really help. Um, oh, yeah. To your, yeah. But to your example, yeah, definitely. I think that's an accurate depiction. But- no, that's a that's a great example though, the overnight, because a lot of stuff comes in overnight. And if it could 
trigger an emergency call to a radiologist or send him or her the images, you know, to their home so that they could take a quick look at it and decide if something really actionable needed to occur right now, you know, to save that patient's life or to keep, keep them from degrading any further in the hours before morning when somebody shows up. Okay. That's a great example. So ER triage, good example. How else could AI be helpful to radiology if you're looking forward? Yeah. Well, I think that the, uh, the my answer would be pretty much anything that a human does for the radiology uh, life cycle of the image, if you will. So basically, um, you know, it's not just that we get images and we look at them. It starts with ordering um, an image. And a lot of the issues can sometimes be for an ordering doctor. Well, what's the appropriate type of imaging? Should I get an MRI? Should I get a CT? Should I add contrast or not? And these are questions that can take time. Sometimes they're ordered incorrectly. And it creates a little bit of a, um, of a uh, pileup, if you will, of um of uh, different tasks because radiologists might have to correct it. They might have to call for verification, you know? So one of the things that I could foresee is AI coming in even before an image is ordered where it can guide the ordering provider. Hey, tell me what the symptoms are. Tell me what you're looking for. I'll tell you which study to order. And I'll tell you if you should order with contrast. And unfortunately with these orders, they're often tied to things like reimbursements. And so it's really important um, for the workflows that we get these right. Um, but then once it's ordered, there are things like, well, let's say we get an MRI. We have to do something called protocoling, where we decide what types of MRI sequences are we getting? Is there any special type of processing that we need to do? And that, unfortunately, it falls often onto radiologists to sit there through a list, review every study, and basically click through and make decisions about, do I need to get um, this type of protocol versus that? And that's one thing that AI has been explored for is automatic protocoling. If you can imagine, that's not something that is terribly fun for us um, to do. It's basically, it's pretty algorithmic where you take the indication, meaning what's the reason for the study. You look at what type of MRI, some of the other um, clinical factors, and you just basically click through algorithms. Um, and then, you know, we have the actual image acquisition. We have image reconstruction. Um, AI is certainly being explored for that kind of thing where we can say, let's say MRI, for instance, those can often take um, 30 plus minutes, even over an hour. And it's really uncomfortable. You have to be in this like kind of claustrophobic area with very loud noises all in your ear for yep. you know, dozens <laughs> just of minutes. One, if not I just hour. had one done a little while ago. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you've, you've experienced it firsthand. It's, it's not pleasant. But one of the cool things about um, AI and specifically with deep learning is image reconstruction basically being able to speed these MRIs as quickly as even five minutes for an EMRI. Uh, one of my mentors, um, Dr. Jan Fritz at NYU, he's been exploring for a number of years with uh, Siemens um, for basically doing fast MRI. And could you imagine rather than half an hour, it's like, I can go on my lunch break, go get an MRI, come on out. And so um, that's just from the image acquisition side. And then once the images have been reconstructed, sent to the radiologist, then I think it's the usual thing that most people think about, which is diagnosis. Can we identify a tumor? Can we identify a pneumonia? Can we identify a fracture? And then again, just going down that life cycle, we make our diagnosis, we generate a report. And so this is a written text, gives a summary of what we see, what we think the diagnosis is. And that's something, um, in my experience, sometimes it can be longer to actually generate that report than it is to actually look at the images. 
Mm-hmm. And so for me, that would be a tremendous workflow um, accelerator. And then finally, there's the communication to the ordering doctors. Um, you know, believe it or not, we still pick up the phone and we call people, we talk to them. <laughs> I would hope that we could, uh, you know, in this day and age, we've got smartphones, we've got, you know, all these messaging systems. Maybe we could make it automated and at least get rid of some of that cognitive burden. And then finally, um, we often make recommendations for follow-up imaging studies. Let's say we see something, we're not sure what it is. Maybe you need to get an ultrasound in a few months or a few weeks. Sometimes those things fall through the cracks, but what if there was a system that could note those things and then follow up and make sure that it pings you or your doctor, like, Hey, you should follow up on this. Has this been done? And I think those are, um, some of the, a few of the ways that AI could help radiologists. So there's this whole life cycle of the image. And I think, uh, there's so many ways they could be inserted and really help improve things. Absolutely. Now, one of the things you mentioned, um, and you actually alluded to it when you talked about some of the focus of your research earlier in um, our discussion was a key issue. And that is, you know, what if the radiologists and AI disagree? And that goes to your whole, you know, what the concerns about the trustworthiness of AI, the bias of AI. When you and I talked several weeks ago, you talked. You used breast cancer experience and a breast cancer experience with AI as an example. Could you tell tell us more about that? Yeah, definitely. So, um, I think a lot of the research so far in AI for medical imaging is focused a lot on diagnostic performance. How accurate is the AI? And even couldn't improve human performance if we kind of link up the predictions from AI and the humans. But one thing that I think has had less um, attention paid towards is, well, how does this impact radiologists and sort of their psychology? Um, there's some pretty uh, well-known psychology experiments of sort of like peer pressure or um, suggestibility where if you're in a room and let's say there's like a line of five people and you're number five, there's some obvious thing, like a question, like one plus one is, it's two. But if everyone in that line says something like three, 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 people are tempted to kind of conform and say uh, three. And so I think that, you know, that's, that might sound like a, a facetious kind of example, but I think the point is um, the concept is there where if someone disagrees with you, I think most of us will at least think, hmm, maybe I'm wrong. And so the question is like, if I'm looking at a scan, let's say a mammogram for breast cancer screening, and I think there's no cancer, but if an AI says, I think there's cancer, for me, I would honestly second guess myself. And part of that is because, you know, I'm not trained in mammography specifically. Um, but I think even for those who are, I would think that it's just like a, having your friend, let's say a peer radiologist said, I think there's a cancer. It will probably make us at least take another look. And so, you know, as far as how to um, solve that, I think that it's, uh, I'm not entirely sure. I think part of it is because we're still early on with um, this technology. But one thing I can say is that if we look back to some of the earlier forms of AI and breast cancer screening, this was something called computer-aided diagnosis back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And this was before deep learning, which is the state-of-the-art um, set of techniques used today. But it used um, kind of more traditional machine learning to look for things that looked worrisome for cancer. And it was nice in theory. And it actually became the gold standard in terms of um, being reimbursable through uh, Medicare and insurance companies. But the reality is it ended up not being all that helpful. 
And some studies have actually showed that it can actually, in some cases, make radiologists less accurate, ostensibly because it makes them double guess and or second guess themselves and not necessarily follow their instincts, which have been honed after years and years of you know, medical training. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the reasons for that are going to be variable. It's going to depend on each radiologist. Every person has their own idiosyncrasies in practice. Some people are going to be better at certain types of diagnoses than others. And so I think that ultimately, um, for the time being, at least, it'll be incumbent on each individual radiologist to one, be a savvy consumer and user of AI. If you know that this AI software is being used, understand what are the limitations of it? What has the performance been? Um, what are the implications of this? Because, you know, that's one thing that um, I think still has, uh, has to be figured out is what are the medical legal implications? You know, what if the AI marks an area that you think is cancer? Do you have to try to take that off if you disagree? Do you address it in your report? Because it could be that, let's say, it ends up being a cancer, you ignore it. Later on the line, they go back and they say, hey, doctor, there is this circle around this area. You didn't mention it. What's the what's the deal here? Did you just were you negligent? Did you just ignore it? And so I think that those are some practical things that will be dependent on each individual radiology practice. Um, and there really isn't a gold standard for it yet. I think that beyond that, though, from a radiology department level, for departments that are purchasing these softwares, there really needs to be um, a thoughtful consideration of how do we implement this and how do we um, do what you were talking about, adjudicate these differences in opinion. Do we have an official departmental policy so that we can get guidance to our radiologists as well as protect them from uh, potential legal liabilities? Because I think that um, it comes back to not trying to get out of responsibility, but really making it um, easy and the obvious choice to use this technology without worrying about these realities that are um, you know, potential limitations. And then I think at a higher level, beyond the the local department for radiology societies, um, there needs to be standards set for how do we actually uh, do things like troubleshooting these um, differences in opinion. And I will say, um, thankfully, I know of radiology departments actively working in this space as well as radiology societies. So, um, you know, we as a field are working on it, but uh, I think for now, the best thing is um, treating it like any technology. We have to do our due diligence. We have to be savvy consumers. And we have to um, use it appropriately and, well, frankly, document if we're going to be using it. So there's a lot more that goes into this than just just saying that you've got a deep learning system that can look at a certain kind of image, let's say, and pick certain things out. And and now you, you you raise your hands and you say, hurrah, look at this great technology that we can offer the medical world, but there's just a ton more that goes into this that you're, that you're talking about in terms of how you get the doctors involved in it, how you get the societies involved in it, and then all the implications as to how do you judge how you're going to use that information, you know, to benefit the patient and everybody, you know, all the other stakeholders. It, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's pretty complicated, actually. Um, yeah, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> do, do you um, foresee any um, robust applications here in the near future? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I mentioned a lot of these, uh, you know, potential pitfalls or um, obstacles, but I'm very optimistic about the future of AI and radiology. 
one of the things I think is really cool is there's a lot of active work to literally building more robust and explainable deep learning methods for general imaging and medical imaging as well. Uh, one key effort in this is um, ensuring that data sets that we use are diverse and mm -hmm. large so that, you know, it's not that these um, deep learning models are just learning uh, basically features that are specific to one hospital, but don't necessarily generalize to another. And so one effort in this is building these massive, diverse data sets for multiple institutions, having diversity in the types of, let's say, X-ray machines or MRI scanners represented, but also different types of people, whether it's different demographics, according to age, sex, and race, whether it's different, um, just different countries, because even there, right? I think one thing as bone radiologists, I've often thought, you know, I'm pretty sure if you take um, someone, let's say for me, I'm Korean American, you take the average Korean American, um, you take the average Korean living in Korea, I bet you there's going to be some differences in our um, bone metabolism because our diets in the U.S. are um, pretty different. You know, I'd say on average, a little less healthy, although that that is changing as, um, you know, I think economies change. But um, nonetheless, I think that even beyond race, thinking about country of origin, um, because there are a lot of social dynamics that impact health and subsequently how our anatomy changes. So I think that having these large data sets, which a lot of people are doing both at the society levels in the professional societies, as well as in individual labs, basically getting, getting all of the uh, different sites together. I think this is going to be paramount to creating robust algorithms that can generalize to multiple sites. But another key effort in this is um, making more explainable models, basically Right now, people treat these neural networks as black boxes, things that, you know, it's hard to interpret. And so even if we have certain visualization methods, um, commonly used things are saliency heat maps, where we look at an image and try to pick out what part of the image is um, emphasized by the neural network in its decision-making. Mm -hmm. These, unfortunately, have been shown to not be very trustworthy in both the general medical imaging, do general imaging domain, as well as the medical imaging domain. And so one thing that's being worked on um, actively in the hardcore computer science world is advanced interpretability methods to help develop trust in these decisions. And so I think that it's, um, you know, really exciting. The one thing I'll point out is these kinds of developments, it really does demand expertise in technical foundations of deep learning, which also though, in turn, need to take into account um, medical imaging expertise. And so it just, again, signals to me the importance of interdisciplinary collaboration between physicians and engineering experts. Okay. What do companies like radiology technology companies, what, what, what do they need to take into consideration as they're going forward? I think the biggest thing is the uh, cost benefit ratio, meaning is it worth me spending X amount of dollars for this software for the benefit I get? Okay. Um, one example that I think is illustrative is chest x-rays. Um, there's a lot of chest x-ray data out there. It's the most common medical imaging examination in the world. And there's a lot of algorithms that have been developed, whether it's for things like pneumothorax or pneumonias or um, lung cancer. You know, these are nice, but the reality is most chest x-rays, you know, they can be read in less than 30 seconds. Given how fast it is to read an x-ray already, and because there's limited reimbursement that a radiologist receives, I, I do think that the value proposition for a chest X-ray AI system can be challenging because, you know, if you tell me, hey, this algorithm is 100% accurate, but you have to add an extra five seconds to your workflow, 
that might not sound like a terrible amount, but let's say on a given call shift, I've read up to 300, 350 x-rays before. I don't want to add a second more to those interpretations. I sure. want to just get through it. And I feel confident enough as a radiologist that I'm getting all of the uh, findings. That's going to be tough for me to say, well, I'm going to spend even a nickel on each of these. Uh, for every x-ray, I'm going to spend a nickel to have this AI. On the other hand, for something like stroke triage, so um, this AI is a, a pretty well-known startup where they basically look at CTA or CT angiogram studies of the brain. They look for strokes. Right. And they go immediately to the interventional um, neuroradiologist or the neurosurgeon to get surgery um, expedited. This value proposition is really high because this is one of those things that is it's a complex study. It's very high acuity, very high stress. And time is, they say time is brain. So every second counts because every second that passes, just thousands of brain cells are dying. And really seconds, minutes can be the difference of someone living and dying. And if they live between them being functional, being able to use their hands and legs versus being paralyzed the rest of their life. And so because of that, that value proposition is quite high. And it's something that as a radiologist, I would say, yes, 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 yes. And so this is one reason why it's been approved by the um, Centers for Medicare Services for Reimbursement. And it's being adopted by hospitals um, across the country and worldwide. I think that's probably um, a faster pace than say chest x-rays. Not that those things don't have value, but I think that it really has to be kept with, you know, what are the incentives in mind here? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, uh, you and I were chatting before I, you know, we actually started the formal conversation here about Viz AI. And uh, for listeners, I will be interviewing the, one of the co-founders of that company um, here in just a few days. And it is a fascinating story. And I think you're exactly right. So really from an industry standpoint, um, whether it is radiology AI or any kind of AI re related, any medical technology or any medical specialty, industry really needs to talk to the the stakeholders, especially the physicians and maybe some other stakeholders that are involved in the workflow related to their technology and just say, where can we make a big difference for you if we invest in you know, deep learning as part of our product and or service? So I think they really need to, to listen as opposed to just thinking, oh, we can do this better. So let's go do it without really consulting with the marketplace. Yeah, I think the systems are important because uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff out there. But, you know, sometimes we look at it and we say, like, yeah, this isn't worth the hassle. So I okay, think um, yeah. <laughs> that, that begs also the, uh, the user interface is really important, too, because okay. we have softwares that we use. And to be frank, I don't want to click through another, um, you know, several clicks just to get to uh, software. So I think that's another thing. It's usability and making sure that it's integrated with the pre-existing software. And that's challenging because every hospital is going to have a different software they're using. Sure. I did want to ask you, you know, what are your, what research goals do you have for, what did you call it? Yumi? The, Yumi, your yeah. Yumi. And so UM2I, Yumi. What research yes. goals do you have for your, this lab that you're putting together now and, you know, getting ready to tackle big things? So what, what, what are some of your goals? Yeah. So um, some of our goals are to create a um, world-class research program in the traditional sense. So we want to do things um, like uh, publish peer-reviewed uh, manuscripts that are high impact. 
Mm-hmm. We want to push the field forward, both in contributions from our own lab, as well as helping to shape the direction of the field and thought. Um, some of the areas that we're really interested in is basically uh, developing clinical applications of AI for radiology, but also solutions for pitfalls and limitations of current AI solutions. Um, as we mentioned before, I'm really interested in identifying and addressing trustworthiness and fairness issues in deep learning for radiology, as well as building solutions to solve them. And all of this is to push the needle forward, um, not just in research, but also in clinical translation of AI. And that's kind of a um, transitional area where it's research, but it's kind of like quality work in the kind of clinical context where we say, Mm -hmm. you know, there's the research where we're going to be developing a lot of these kind of algorithmic tools, let's say, to address robustness or trustworthiness. But then there's also the research where we have to say, well, what happens when we deploy this in the clinical radiology department? How does it impact the radiologist's accuracy? How does it impact their psychology and all of that? So I think there's a spectrum of these things, but I think that the uh, common thread here is how can we solve the problems that will get us that much closer to making AI clinical reality and ultimately to help patients the way that we intended to. And so um, for the lab, uh, we're creating something that's interdisciplinary by design. Uh, Oftentimes these radiology AI research collaborations involve faculty at the radiology department in the hospital and faculty on the engineering campus, which can be really great because I really believe in that interdisciplinary collaboration, but sometimes that physical distance can be a challenge. And so we're trying to solve that by having both a clinical uh, principal investigator, i.e. myself, and a technical PI um, guy named Dr. Vishwa Parekh, who's a computer science PhD, who'll be joining our faculty in a few months. Um, we're both in the Department of Radiology and working together side by side um, on a daily basis and literally in the same place. And so um, my goal with all of that is to really, really have synergy, really uh, make one plus one equals three, if you will. And I think that we can do that um, just because we have different perspectives, we have different skill sets. And that's where I think uh, that synergy can happen. And so right now you're in the you're in this phase of staffing up you know, uh, getting the, um, maybe even starting to, uh, submit grants for research to help you fund some of the things you want to do. Maybe you've already received some, but you're in this early phase of getting this lab off the ground and making it productive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, yeah, so we're starting on some work with, um, uh, looking at trustworthiness of algorithms, looking at robustness to, uh, what I term clinical variations in imaging. So as we talked about medical imaging, it's not super clean. A lot of times you have images that are rotated. And then me as a radiologist, I have to literally click, flip, 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 and then it's upright. Well, the problem is that if you've trained an algorithm on images that let's say were curated to be the perfect type of orientation or the perfect type of quality, when it's in the real world and it has these flipped images, it might not do so well. And so we've shown that in a series of experiments for some um, bone age prediction algorithms that when you have these simple transformations, so rotations, let's say, the predictions that are made are widely disparate, which leads to changes in clinical diagnoses. Um, And so that's just one of the areas that we're really excited about, but uh, we've got a lot of exciting things in the mix. Got lots to do. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So what advice do you have for a med tech professional in this coming age of artificial intelligence? What advice do you have? Like, you know, how should they learn more about it? Um, Yeah, totally. 
I think that learning about AI, it can be extremely intimidating and overwhelming. When I started, I would Google AI, deep learning. And the materials out there, I just saw they were really geared towards computer science people, really getting into the weeds. Even, you know, I would literally search for simple explanation of convolutional neural network. Right. And the problem is they're by nature extremely complex. Um, and so, you know, I, I definitely can um, understand how it can be challenging. I think one general thing I would recommend is starting with very high level explanations of concepts to get a framework, because I think until you do that, all of these really detailed resources are just going to kind of feel like gibberish. Um, so, you know, one of the things I like to start with is a video that's hosted by the um, uh, journal JAMA, and it's a video that's released by their statistical editors about how a convolutional neural network which is the predominant um, architecture type of a deep learning algorithm that's used currently, um, how it actually works. And it's, it's very, you know, it's done at a very high level, but not super dumbed down where they show you like, Hey, this is kind of intuitively how it works. Um, it's about 13 minutes long and it's the most intuitive, clear explanation I've ever seen. Oh, and for cool. me, that was revolutionary because it showed me, Hey, I've got something to work with here. From there, I'd recommend a review article in the journal Radiographics. Um, it's called Deep Learning, a Primer for Radiologists. And this is a really broad, yet fairly comprehensive overview of deep learning that's designed specifically for non-technical experts. So it's designed for radiologists, but I think by extension to anyone in med tech. And it gives you a really like, I mean, it's like, it's pretty dense. It's like 15, 20 pages, but tons of good material. And if you can take those two, I think that you'll have a really good understanding at a conceptual level of what is deep learning? How do these algorithms work? What does the training involve? What are some of the clinical use cases? And I think from there, now all of a sudden you have some basic language, you have some basic understanding to start doing things like reading the scientific literature. So that can be overwhelming. Um, the final recommendation I'd say is uh, subscribing to some of these med tech newsletters uh, that are focused on um, AI. So one of these is Imaging Wire, and the other is Dr. Penguin. And these oh, okay. are vetted um, articles that, you know, it's released weekly. They have summaries that are really easy to read. You can read it like, you know, in the morning when you're just walking to work. And it's been really helpful for me to at least keep abreast of the uh, latest articles and figure out what's out there, what's coming out. And so, um, you know, to summarize, I think getting a good conceptual foundation and subscribing to newsletters can be a really good first step. And uh, I think that can be the gateway towards a lot of other materials. And I'll try to put links to these things in the show notes. I'll look some of them up. The JAMA video, how difficult is that found if, to find? If I just said, if I just Googled um, JAMA um, artificial intelligence video, would I find it? Or uh, I think JAMA deep learning. JAMA um, deep learning. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but I can uh, I can definitely send you those links. Uh, oh, that'd be great if you would. That'd be great because I like to include those. Plus, I'd like to look at them myself. Well, this has been really terrific. We've we've really gone through a lot of information in the in the past hour, and I really appreciate. You know, it's been a pleasure to get to know you, and I really appreciate the time that you've spent with um, the audience today. Ted, it's been a pleasure uh, for me as well. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And I reserve the right to circle back in like a year and see how you are doing with your lab. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be awesome. I'd, uh, I'd really look forward to that. This was our fourth episode related to AI and med tech. 
This one with Paul Yi and a previous episode with Jonathan Chen have given you a good look into the way that doctors and researchers view artificial intelligence. We have possibly one, maybe even two, more MDs lined up. We also have two very interesting interviews that are from the industry side coming up. One thing you are learning is that the use of deep learning in patient care is powerful and complex. There is so much potential. And you have probably noticed that AI can contribute to value-based care, another subject we have focused on lately. You need to be sure you understand how your technology can fit into deep learning and its impact on patient care. Thank you for spending some time with Paul and me today. Now go win your week.